you may or may not know this uh, little fact. I, I read this this week. I thought this was very interesting, but that, that the average adult makes about 5,000 choices each day. 5,000 choices. And I thought, how can that be? Actually, I read one, one other study that said it could be up to 20,000 a day. And I thought that seemed a little high. But, but whatever it is, the, the, what comes out of those is that we make a lot of choices every day. And uh, one of the fascinating things I was reading about that is it was just saying that a lot of them that we do are just autopilot. We don't even realize we're doing them. We make 200 and some odd choices each day on food, what we're going to eat, what we're not going to eat, which I think that's really kind of sad that we spend so much time thinking about food. But, uh, but as I was thinking about that picture of how many choices we make each day, uh, you know, the significance varies on the choices we make, you know, the what to wear and brush your teeth and get up and all those things that we just make so many don't have huge significance. And, uh, but, but we make choices throughout the day that do have significance and, and there's a whole varying degree, maybe, uh, whether or not to tell the truth or to be honest or the way that you respond to people, that you have a choice, that those may be much more significant than the shoes that you put on this morning. And, uh, so I was thinking about that idea of just us making choices and what that looks like. And then I read a separate study that really didn't have anything to do particularly with the choices thing, but uh, it was uh, Pew Forum Research. They do what people believe and why, and they do all these research. And I read this thing that was astonishing to me, and I think I'd read it before, but every time I read it, I'm still blown away by it. But evangelical Christian non-denominational churches, actually all Protestant, I think is what they're saying, but those that consider themselves evangelical Christian churches, 67% of all people who would put themselves in that category believe there's more than one way to heaven. 67% of those that are professing to follow Christ say there's more than one way. And as I read that, I started to think about that choice that we're making when we say that. And I'll just say it real bluntly. If that is your view of who Jesus is, you don't know Jesus. And that is a sad and serious thing and a serious, serious choice that has eternal consequences And this morning, as we think about that idea and the choices we make and the most important choice being who Jesus is, what we believe about who Jesus Christ is and what he's come to do. uh, We're going to look in the book of Malachi this morning and we're going to see the consequences very clearly of our choices. And what we're going to do is we're going to be in Malachi chapter four, which if you're following along in the Pew Bible, I think it says in the bulletin, but that's on page five hundred and twenty. And as I often say, I just want to make sure everybody that's here that knows that that uh, Bible, if you need one, you don't have a Bible, you're visiting with us. That's yours free to take. We'd love for you to have one. If you need a Bible, please do take one with you and and use it and read it. And we'd love for you to have it. And so this morning as we're in Malachi. We're going to see in a lot of ways the ultimate consequences of our choice and who we believe Jesus is and and what we're doing in this series that we've been in. Uh, We've done it in three parts, and now this is the third part of it. We've been walking our way straight through the Bible. And so to this point, I went back and looked this week. uh, For 30 weeks this year, we've been in the Old Testament. 30 times we've been in the Old Testament. And I was encouraged and excited by that. I hope that our time in the Old Testament is is coming to a close. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And we're going to be in the last chapter of the Old Testament today before we move next week on to the New Testament. And I hope you've been encouraged by our time in the Old Testament, that you've seen that, that Jesus Christ is there throughout the Old Testament, that the promises of, of God and He's faithful and what they're pointing to, and, uh, and that today, as we, we wrap that up, that you would see the same thing, that you would see how this is pointing to Christ and, and what He's doing and how God is fulfilling His promises. And so, 
That's what we're going to look at today in Malachi. And as I said last week, as we've gotten this far into our overview, we can't do the recap every week. We can't go back and do the whole recap of the whole Bible to get to this point. And so uh, I would point you to the website we actually have when we did the overview study in Sunday school. It's about a 45-minute thing that just takes you big idea, would help uh, catch you up. I think we're out of the CDs, but we're going to get more of those if you would like that. And that just helps you maybe see the whole thing if you've missed parts or just to refresh her. And so, but today, but let me just set the scene of Malachi so we know right where we are, just, just the immediate uh, context. As we get to Malachi, Malachi is what we call a, a post-exile prophet. He comes after the exile. And what we mean by the exile is 586 B.C., 586 years before Christ, Babylon comes in and they destroy Jerusalem and they take the people out and they do all this horrible stuff and they take them out. And then 70 years later, just as God said, they come back. Cyrus becomes king and he allows the Israelites to come back into the land and they do. And they come back and they take the land and they start to rebuild the cities and they rebuild the temples and they rebuild the walls and they do all these great things. And as we saw uh, about a month back in Nehemiah, they start to read God's word and to seek his face and to do these things and they're returning. And so during that time, uh, that's when uh, Malachi writes right after that time as they're, they're rebuilding. But also during that time, you have the prophets of Haggai and uh, Zechariah and, and they're writing to the people and they're saying things like the latter glory of this house being the temple shall be greater than the former. So they're telling the people, hey, even though all this has happened, it's going to be better. It's still going to be better. But they're standing there looking at the temple and it's nothing compared to what it used to be to Solomon's temple. And the people are trying to figure that out. And so what happens is they realize that the prophecies are pointing to, well, the Messiah is going to come. That's what's going to make it better. That's the only way it could be better is if the Savior is to come. And so they're expectingly waiting for the Savior after the exile. And the people are excited about it. But as it often is, time starts to pass and years go on and years and the Messiah hasn't come yet. And people become lethargic and they become careless in their worship and they start to fall back into the old patterns that led to the exile in the first place. And so what happens is it tells us as you read through Malachi, there's seven conversations with God and he's calling them out on the things that they're doing and the way they're forsaking God and they're turning from him and they they're careless in their worship and they're just going through the motions and they've quit tithing and they begin to oppress the poor and they begin to intermarry with unbelievers. The very thing that got them into so much trouble to begin with. And they start to do all those things. People that have become bored with God because they're waiting. They're waiting and they're waiting and time passes. And so I think about Malachi as we come to it today. Part of the prophecy we're going to look at is Jesus' second coming, which we're still waiting on and looking ahead. And how relevant this book is to us. Year after year, we think, oh, this could be the end times. This could be when Christ returns. And then we get on with life and we settle in. And we kind of forget about it and get back to our way of just being about this life. Same thing they were doing. So there's a real relevance for Malachi for our day. And so we're going to look at Malachi chapter four and then we'll pray and then we'll just go right through these verses together. But let's read it first. Malachi four, beginning in verse one. And it's only six verses, but we're going to look at the whole chapter today. And it says, for behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall 
and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at that uh, passage together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, As we just sang, we ask that your spirit would fall fresh on this place, that you would come and you would open our eyes to see the beauty of who you are and what you've done, that we would... We would grasp this truth that we look at this morning, that you would apply it to our hearts and our minds, that you would show us areas where we're not trusting you, that you would just bring us into full obedience and just a full love for you. We pray that you would do that through your word this morning and through your spirit moving. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what we're looking at, really what we're seeing in Malachi is the ultimate consequence of not trusting in who God is. What's the ultimate end of that? And what we see in Malachi is we really see two prophecies, two here in these verses, and we're going to look at them in just a minute, and one looking ahead, even further ahead to Christ's second coming, and one hitting more on Christ's first coming when he came 2,000 years ago. And it's an interesting thing the way that uh, Malachi does this, but I think God obviously inspired it, and there was for good reason that he did this. And so what we're going to, how we're going to look at this is this. First, what is this teaching us about the second coming? That's still future, Christ's second coming. Secondly, why chronologically here in the book does the second coming come first? Why does he talk about that first? I think there's a good reason why. So why why does that come first? Then third, what does it teach us about the first coming of Christ? Because it tells us some things about that. And then lastly, why does it matter for us? All right, so second coming, why that order? First coming, and then why for us? Okay, so let's look at it that way. What does it teach about the second coming of of Christ. And remember the context here. It's always important to think about the context of who this is written to and what's going on. This is a spiritually apathetic people. They've grown bored with God. They're losing interest. And then here comes God telling them and saying and, and speaking through Malachi saying, I'm still working here. I haven't forgotten. My plan has not been foiled. It's still coming to fruition and I'm still working here. And you see that in verses one through three as he he tells them what's coming. And let's just read those verses again. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and evil doers will be stubble. The day coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that they will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I'm going to stop right there, because as we see those verses and we look at those, we're looking ahead to Christ's second coming that's still future for us. That Christ is going to come, and what it's going to be like when He comes. And what we see is two very different ends. Verse 1 and then verse 2. Verse 1 being the arrogant evildoers and what lies at the end for them, versus verse 2, those who fear God who've put their trust in him. And so what we're looking at is the two ways that that can go. And notice the difference between the people that God's talking about, the way he says it. In verse 1, they're arrogant. And in verse 2, they're those that fear his name. It's quite a difference in the way we look at it. The arrogant versus those that humbly fear the Lord. And that's the difference between the two. But let's take verse 1 first. Those that 
don't fear him and, and their er- in their arrogance, in their own ways, they've looked to themselves. And in a lot of ways, that's what we've been talking about as we've been moving through the whole of Scripture. We've been saying over, we've, we've entitled the big picture, this, this overview uh, series, The Story, as in the story of all history. And what we've been saying each week is the story is actually about God, not about us. And that's the lie. That's, that's what sin does to us. We want to make it all about us. And it's all about me and what I'm doing. And it's really about God and what he's doing. And you see that even here in verse 1 and verse 2. The difference is verse 1 are those that think it's all about themselves. They've bought in arrogantly to their sinful nature. It's all about me. Versus verse 2, those who fear the Lord and see that it's all about God. And the difference of what happens and what we see, though, of those that don't fear the Lord, that have not put their faith in him, they will be exposed. There's this wonderful image here that Malachi uses of the son of righteousness that will rise. And as you read through scripture and you look at all the pieces and what's there, what it's talking about is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son of righteousness. But notice the way he says it here. He says son, as in the son, S-U-N, son. The bright light. And so this picture emerges in my mind that when Christ returns with fullness of righteousness, the fullness of the sun, the blazing uh, righteousness that will come, that it will show us clearly and completely where our trust is, whether it's arrogantly in ourselves or it's in God. And so in verse one, you have those that have put their trust in themselves and what will be revealed. And it's not a pretty picture. When you read that and it says it will come burning like an oven and the evildoers, the arrogant will be reduced to stubble and it shall come and set them ablaze. It's not a pretty picture. And you see this of those that are rejecting Christ and rejecting God's promises and they're not fearing him. What is to come? And it's it's that they'll be put away from God forever. And I want us to be clear and just Feel the weight this morning, the reality of what Scripture says for those that are not trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. And that is the doctrine of hell. We don't like to talk about that. We often kind of skim over it. Well, if you put your faith in God, it's eternal life. And if you don't, you're lost. And we'll say it like that. Or we, we kind of leave it out. And we don't go to what Scripture actually teaches. But you see here, even in verse 1, you start to get the reality of it. They will be set ablaze. It will be like a burning oven. It's not a pretty picture. And sometimes we like to kind of end around on that and just, oh, yeah, yeah, let's not talk about that. But the reality is when you read through Scripture, and especially when you read through Jesus and what He said and what He did, Jesus talked about it often. And when he did, he talked about it very urgently and very directly. He didn't go around it. He talked about that there is a real final destination apart from God for those who choose to put their hope in themselves versus in the fear of the Lord. And he says that so clearly over and over. Jesus uses words like it'll be an unquenchable fire and eternal punishment. And that is so hard for our minds to get around. God's justice, his perfect justice in the way that will come. But we need to feel the weight of what this is talking about. You see it very clearly in Revelation chapter 14. And it's talking about the serpent. And 
and when God defeats Satan and what happens and the way he's thrown into this pit, which Jesus teaches us is where those that reject him will go. And what it tells us in Revelation 14 is he will drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest Day or night, and these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's what the Bible teaches for those that are not in Christ. And we need to feel the weight and see that. Because that's what scripture clearly teaches. That's what verse 1 is talking about. Those who reject Christ and decide, I'm okay in myself. And in their arrogance, they make it about themselves. And it's not, that's a tough thing to hear for us, for all of us, to really feel the weight of that. But then you get to verse 2 and it talks about those that have put their faith, put their fear in God. But those who fear His name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And so those that have put their faith in Christ it will be a wonderful, beautiful day in which we will rejoice because Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, there is now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so there's nothing to be feared in the day of judgment for those that are hiding themselves in Christ and him alone. And so when we make that comparison, I want you to see that there. What's really the, the difference between the two is one is arrogant and one is self-centered and saying, I'm OK in myself. I can do this. I'm doing some works. I'm trying my hardest, whatever that may be, versus the one who says my faith is completely and totally in Christ and what he's done for me. And that's the difference there. And that's what you see that the hiding in the uh, having that fear of God. We talked we hit on that just briefly last week, the fear of God and what that means and thinking it's seeing God for who he is. Having a reverential awe that all things hold together in him. That we live and we move and we breathe and everything is because of his grace and nothing else. He sustains us at each moment. And when we see that, when we see who God is, there's no place for arrogance. It's either one or the other. When we see God for who he is, there's no place for arrogance on our part. And so those that have put their faith in God and his promises, which ultimately here are talking about Christ, that day when Jesus returns, it will be wonderful beyond all comprehension. It'll be the greatest day ever. And you see that picture there. of We will go out leaping like the calves from the stalls. You see that picture of joy. And so what we talk about, what the first thing it teaches us here about the second coming is there's two destinations. There's either being put away from God forever in torment for eternity or to be with Christ forever in complete fullness and in joy. And there's nothing in between. And so the interesting thing, though, is when we read this, Malachi writing to people that lived 450 years before Christ would even come. So why does God inspire him to talk about the second coming first? Right? The first coming hasn't even happened yet. Right? Christ hasn't come yet. It's just promises pointing ahead to him coming. But him coming physically on the earth hasn't even happened yet. So why do it like that? Why start with the end? Right? Why go out of order? And I think there's a real clear connection as to why. 
And we're going to look at verses five and six in a minute because that points us to when the first coming. But before we do that, I want us to think about the implication of why start with the final judgment. And I think we see it clearly in John chapter three as John as uh, Jesus talks with Nicodemus. And they're going through and they're talking about what it means to be saved and have eternal life. And Jesus is explaining it. And Nicodemus is confused. And you get to the famous verse in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then what I want us to think about this morning for just a second is verse 17 and 18. Because verse 17 says God did not send his son into the world To condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, which we love that verse. People like to throw that out and Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save, which is absolutely true. He did come to save. It's what scripture teaches, but we like to stop right there. We like to leave out verse 18 because verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so what that is teaching us, and I think what we're seeing by talking about the end first, the second coming first, is simply this. The moment you receive or reject Jesus Christ, you are passing judgment day verdict on yourself. Because apart from Christ, you're condemned already. In our sins... In our rebellion, in our deciding to make things a world that was made to be all about God, to make it about us, we've rejected the way we were made. We are in rebellion against our Creator and we are condemned because God is so perfect in His righteousness, in His holiness, in His justice. That's, that's our standing apart from Christ. And so when it says in verse 17 that Christ didn't come to condemn the world, He didn't come to condemn the world because we're condemned already. It's like to say, well, Jesus didn't come to save uh, the innocent people. Right? Well, that doesn't work because there are no innocent people. That's the problem. See, all of us apart from Christ are condemned. We've ignored God and the world that he's created. Our sin is against him. We've broken that bond. And so what we see here is is apart from Christ, God's wrath rests on us and that sin disconnects us and there can't be a relationship and then we're forced into a decision either in our arrogance we'll say well i'll be okay i'm a pretty good person god will accept me that's the people in verse one i'm okay on my own god i'm a pretty good person or we have the choice of verse two i can't do this and i need the only one that can save me the one who's come into the world the only son of god jesus christ and that's it And there's no other choice. And it's the greatest choice that you'll ever make. And so I think you see that uh, starting with the end, starting with what's finally at stake before we go to the prophecy that points us to the first coming of Christ, because that's what's at stake here. But then what about the first uh, coming? What about the prophecy that points to his first coming? And we see that in verses five and six. Look at five and six there. It says, behold, I will send you. Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So there's a prophet coming before this final coming happens. And he will return the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so we say, well, what is that talking about? And I really like when I get the text like this that I don't have to guess. 
because it's so clear. And I say it's so clear because Jesus himself interprets what this means for us in Matthew chapter 11. It's really nice when the author of the book tells you what he meant. And that's what we have when Christ interprets scripture. He's telling us exactly what it means. And so what Jesus tells us it means as he's talking what this prophecy is pointing to is John the Baptist. Jesus's cousin who would come and point to Christ and tell people that he's now here. If you remember John, he came and he was there and he would say, I'm not the Christ. Or as it says it in John chapter one, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. That was John's job. He came and said, the kingdom is now here. The kingdom is near. Repent. And it's all Jesus. And he would point to Christ. And that was John's job. And I want you to think about what John did and what he said. He said, repent. The kingdom is at hand. And then he told the people, you're not saved by being religious. You're not saved because of your heritage. There were lots of Jews that had become very arrogant in their faith. And I'm saved because I am a son of Abraham and look at who I am. And John came and said, no, you're not. You're saved by faith in who God is and what he's promised and what he's doing. And he was calling them out of their arrogance, out of their self-sufficiency, out of self-righteousness. That's what John's job was and what he did. And so when we look at these two prophecies together, the arrogant that will be put away forever and those that fear God, and then we move right to what John the Baptist would come and point to, you see the connection there. That John's calling us to repent. And you see that picture that's before that great day is coming, before that final judgment, that there's an opportunity to repent, to turn and put your faith in God alone. Right? God is saying to an apathetic people that are losing interest and have come bored with God. I'm not done yet and I'm still working and this is where it ends. All my promises in the Old Testament are still coming to fruition. Look at verse 4. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Oreb for all Israel. Right? Remember what I've been telling you all along. It all comes to fulfillment in Christ. And he's saying, don't forget that. And I'm still working and I'm still doing it. And I'm still calling people to repent. Just like it says with John the Baptist. And that's where we get. We get this picture of what's coming in the second coming. But what came when Jesus came and what John comes and he calls us to repentance and to put our faith in him. And so we get to the end of these today. And I want us just to think about this for a minute. Which are you? Are you the one that's putting your faith in yourself? Are you putting your faith completely in God and what he's done for you? Are you the arrogant? Are you the one that fears God? And I want you to think about that for just a second. And I want you to think that when the sun of righteousness rises and just get that picture in your mind of what it's talking about. When Christ returns in the fullness of his glory and it shines through everything. We're seen completely our hearts, not just what our mouths say, not the show we put on for everything is laid out. And Christ asks you, which which is it? Are you the person in verse one? Are you the person in verse two? What would your answer be? How would you answer that question? Would you say something like, well, I've tried really hard. I came to church almost every week. I was in a Bible study. I even came to Sunday school. 
Or maybe say, I was a really good husband. Or I really loved my wife. Or I loved my kids. Or maybe your story is, I've messed up quite a bit and I made lots of mistakes, but I tried to make amends. And I tried to do the best I could. And I worked so hard at it. And I really tried to do that. If that's your answer, if your answer begins with, I tried to be whatever. I tried to be really good. I tried to do this. Any of those, you're the person in verse 1. You're the one that's putting your faith in yourself and what you can do and how I can reach God and what I can do for Him and what will look at me and see. And I say that with all seriousness and the weightiness because as I read this week that 67% don't think that Christ is the only way. The reality is there's somebody sitting here this morning thinking it's because of what I do. It's because I came to church. It's because I tried to be a good person. And if that's the case, you're the person in verse 1. You'll be lost. Because there's only one way. And it's only what Jesus can do for you and nothing else. It's the only possible way. It's not you. We arrogantly try to think, well, I've done this and look at how good I am and Put on our face. Well, when the sun of righteousness rises, that will all be laid bare and your heart will be laid open. And the only answer that gets you into be the person in verse 2 that is, that is uh, coming to the sun of righteousness with healing in his wings and leaping like calves is because you can say it's Christ alone for me and his righteousness and nothing else. I don't have anything to offer here. It's exactly what Paul said in the the reading that we just read this morning from 1 Corinthians. He chose those that are not wise and are not smart and don't have it together so that no one would boast and it would be all about Christ and nothing else. And that's the only way, that's the only answer that we can ever say. And so I just I want you to look inward, really think about your heart in the way that you see Christ, in the way that you prize him in your heart and the way that you see those things because Jesus says the same thing and he says it and it is chilling when you think about it. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, we did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. And the reason is because those, as you read in Matthew and you read through that and what Jesus is talking about, it's those that were thinking they were doing stuff for God. They were arrogantly thinking it's about me and what I'm doing for him instead of what he's done for me. And that's the only way. And so lastly, if you are, if you're the person in verse 2 and your hope and your life is in Christ. What does that look like? What should, should that look like? What should that be? And I, I go to Paul's words because I can't say it any better than this. To live as Christ and to die as gain. That's what it means. So when you understand it, that's what happens. For my life to be all about Christ and if I die or I go tomorrow or Christ returns, if the sun of righteousness rises tomorrow, it's a gain. It couldn't be any better. And so what does that look like to die as gain? The first, that second part, to die as gain is, is, is we're 
with John in, in Revelation 22 when Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And he says, yes, come, Lord Jesus, come. We can't wait for the day because of what you've done for us and to see you in all your glory. But that doesn't mean we just sit around and just wait. Because the first part of what Paul says, for me to live is Christ. And so there are so many, there are so many that fall into the category of verse 1. That don't know him. And so we have just, a, when you think about it in eternity, we have a breath. We have just a moment in time. And God's given you that time to go forth and to share his love with those. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. And so as we, we close out the Old Testament this week, I just pray that that is the desire of our hearts. That we can say that with all sincerity and fullness and complete faith in who Christ is. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, a text like this, a prophecy like this that points us ahead. Thank you for the weightiness of eternity and what it means. And I pray that we would just feel that this morning, that we would feel that there is no other way other than you and what you've done in us, that we would celebrate that, but that we would lovingly go forth and speak that to each person we come into contact with because the consequences are huge beyond anything we can imagine. So we just ask this morning that we would be a people that's faithful to love you and follow you in all things, that our lives would be completely and totally about you and nothing else. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.